Welcome to devmode.fm, a podcast dedicated to the tools, techniques, and technologies used in modern web development. I'm Andrew Welch from NY Studio 107. I'm Patrick Harrington from Mildly Geeky in Boston. I'm Jonathan Melville from MDD in Atlanta. And today we have on Eric Meyer from An Event Apart. Eric, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing excellent today. Thank you for, for asking. So if you were at a cocktail party and someone just sauntered up to you and said to you, what do you do for a living, Eric? What would you tell them? I would say, uh, I would quote uh, the movie Fletch and say, I'm a shepherd. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually a thing that I that I sometimes use, I have to admit. Um, just because it's so hard to describe, right? But usually if, if they get beyond that, I say I'm a technical author and a uh, co-founder of a web design and development conference. And that's usually, that's usually enough to drive away 90% of the people who will saunter up to their parties. <laughs> They're like, oh, I'm going to go check the cocktail bar. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, it, you know, you've been involved in the industry for a very long time, right? You had something to do with a, a little something called CSS. Is that right? Yeah. I've actually been involved longer than that. Yeah. I started out on my first web document I marked up. The first HTML document I marked up in December of 1993. Mm. Oh, that's great. Uh, yeah. Um, and it was right around the same time as that some other stuff was going on that actually makes me super excited to be on the uh, on this podcast with you, Andrew, because oh. I remember when I downloaded Maelstrom. Oh. <laughs> and Kyle wow. and, and a Pyron and... And yeah, yeah I, I still have some of the installers, even though I don't have no idea if they would run like escape That's velocity. Funny. That's Avara, funny. How, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny how paths cross. Yeah. Back in 93, I had a website too. And you, you might find this amusing. So the first website that we did, like for a long time, we just had like an AOL forum and first website, I just did it all by hand. That was, that was back in like, oh God, might've been like 91, 92, I don't know, somewhere around there. And it wasn't until 2015 that I knew what a div was. Okay. <laughs> like, I'm not even kidding because it just, you know, just wasn't something that I was involved in. But in terms of the stuff that you were doing in terms of CSS, what kind of stuff did you do? You were on some of the steering committees and, and helped author some of it or, or yeah. what was your role there? I'm, I was an invited expert for a number of years. Um, so the way that this happened was I was doing web stuff at Case Western Reserve University in, in Cleveland, Ohio, which is where I live still. I decided that I wanted to go to the Fifth International World, World Wide Web Conference because it was being held in Paris. All right. And I had never been to Europe. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's a, hey, that's a great reason. Right. So I submitted a, a paper and it was accepted for presentation. So I got the university to pay to send me to Paris. While I was there, you know, I, I didn't know much of anything. But while I was there, I decided I would just sit at the W3C track because at this conference, there was literally an entire track of the conference was just W3C stuff. And one of the presentations was about this new up and coming language called Cascading Style Sheets. Hmm. I had never heard of. This is 95. Right. I, be I believe 95, 90, 96. Sorry. Yeah, 96. It just blew the top of my head off. From the present, I was just like, this is what we, I've been waiting for. This is awesome. And so I started making support charts because this was the days of Netscape 3 and Internet Explorer 3 and Netscape 4 and support was not great. So I started making these support charts that I published. And in order to make the support charts, I had to make test pages. And at some point I had enough test pages that I thought, oh, maybe I should email the working group and see if they're interested in this. And it turned out that nobody had made any test pages for CSS oh, wow. before this, or at least none that had been shared with the working group. And they were like, this is awesome. Would you like to be an invited expert of the working group? And I said, 
sure why not <laughs> that's um, great and so that was i mean it was for a few years in the, the early 2000s um i was I, I got too busy doing other stuff and so at some point the chair of the working group emailed and said hey i noticed that you haven't really been participating for the last 18 months should we still list you as an invited expert and i said no you're right take take me off the list yeah wow that's really cool i mean it must be sort of like css to you must sort of be like a child that you helped to rear and helped to raise and, and guided. And then it went off kind of into its own. What are your thoughts on where it has ended up? I so much better than it, than where we started. I'm amazed at how consistent and powerful CSS has got, especially because there, there was a period where it looked like CSS was going to strangle on, on browser inconsistencies. Hmm. Right around 2000, right, late late 90s to 2000. If it hadn't been for Todd Farner and Tontek Chalik, and uh, I think Peter Linz was part of this too. Uh, we probably wouldn't have CSS today. Some, something else would have been come up with. An really? What happened? So those who were doing CSS back in the day remember that the box model was completely incompatible between Internet Explorer and, and Netscape. The width, the, like literally the, the interpretation of width and height was was different between the two browsers. And then things it seems like a basic thing. It's a very basic height. thing. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? Well, in CSS with in original CSS and CSS one and, and really still in, in like basic unmodified CSS width and height refer to the content area of an element and any padding or border or margin is outside of that width and height. But Internet Explorer had had done it visually. They said the width is from the outer edge of the border to the outer edge of the border and any padding or content is inside of that right? Fundamentally incompatible. Like right. if you said with 400 pixels and you had some padding and borders, like the, the, literally you could put two browsers side by side and the, the thing would be different widths, like noticeably different widths. Anyway, so Netscape didn't want to switch what they were doing because they had 90% of the market or by that time, 80% of the market. And so they didn't feel like they needed to. And also they had all these people who had written pages that looked best in Netscape Navigator. And if they changed their handling of width and height, it would break pages. Well, Internet Explorer had a bunch of customers all over the world who had made sites best look looks best in Internet Explorer. And they were like, there was this deadlock. Mm. And so the idea was proposed that it wouldn't it be nice if we had some kind of switch that we could tell a browser, you know, either use the thing that you first implemented or follow the specs, particularly for Internet Explorer, because they had not followed the specs. That's doc type switching. Todd Farner proposed that, hey, ah. pages that are well authored are probably the ones that have doc types because almost nobody uses document types at the top of their HTML. And it very quickly got implemented. Uh, uh, IE5 for the Mac was possibly the first. It, it, my memory gets a little fuzzy. But that that's doc type switching is the if there's no doc type or if it's one of these really old doc types, then like use your old rendering engine and your old parsing. But if it has HTML 4.01 strict or it has XHTML1 doc type, use the standards based parsing and 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 stuff that that you've fixed. That saves CSS. Hmm. Clever. Yeah, it was very clever. And it, it came at a point when those of us who were kind of immersed in CSS were like, I, I don't see any way out of this. Like, nobody's going to budge. And, and then what? Because CSS is you, like, we need, we were talking about like, can we have a way to say, you know, basically do what, what JavaScript was doing. If you're Internet Explorer, here's some CSS. And if you're Netscape, here's some other CSS. Right. But 
Todd came up with this much more elegant solution. Was that Todd Farner of Todd yes. of Farner image replacement fame? Yes. Yep. That's him. What is Farner image replacement? Well, so back in the day, if you had, you, you wanted to have actual text within your markup, like let's say an H1 element that is the title of your page, but you wanted to also have your logo be representative of that element, you could use the technique that he came up with to sort of hide the text and show the logo while still making the text accessible to a screen reader. Oh, okay. Very cool. Having worked on CSS back in the day, were there ever any times where, again, to use the, the kid analogy, you were worried you're going to have to bail them out of jail or something like that? I mean, the the thing we talked about, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, the, okay. The, doc, the, the, the incompatibilities. That was the biggest problem because the first implementations had been, I mean, you know, the developers looked at the specifications, but maybe didn't read them super closely because usually whoever was working on the CSS engine was one or two people. Or they may have had reason not to follow them, right? I mean, wasn't that the tactic of IE back in the day? Um, That tactic was used. I don't know that it was used in CSS. Like, I I know the people who worked on the CSS engines, and I don't don't think that that they were doing things intentionally wrong. Right. I think they, I think they, I mean, you know, this was the era of, you know, six kids in the basement of NCSA can put together a, a browser and have it take over the world. Um, <laughs> so, you know, there was there was that, you know, ship early, ship often kind of mentality. But the W3C and the standards process didn't have the same gravity that they do now at that point. Right. So the W3C was actually a fairly new institution. And so I, th- I think I think that's where it came from. There, certainly in other areas, yes, there was all kinds of embrace and extent. But I don't I don't think that that's that was what was happening with CSS. I, I remember um, the browser wars like it was a big deal, and, and they yeah. they a lot of these companies thought there was a lot of money riding on who was going to be able to lock it up, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. There, there still seems to be some thoughts along those lines these days. Did you ever have anyone from uh, an organization, you know, approach you and offer you some bribe money to <laughs> make, make sure that you swung a certain thing their way or anything like that? You know what? Uh-oh. Now that you ask, Uh-oh. I did get a call from someone at Microsoft. Steve Ballmer. Uh, I'm not going to name names. <laughs> okay. Even though they no longer work at Microsoft. All right. But actually someone on the IE team literally called me on the phone at my, at my office. Uh, I was still working at Case Western Reserve University and said, so your support charts that show what, what different browsers support and, and what they don't. So for us, could you be harder on us? And I said, okay, that's not where I thought the call was going to (laughs) go. Yeah. But what the reason was they needed ammunition to convince the office team, the Microsoft office team, that the Internet Explorer team needed resources to fix these things. In public public facing, basically public shaming, even though that wasn't the point of the support charts, but public shaming was the the strongest lever they had. So they were doing it to try and get funding and resources. Yeah, and basically to make it a priority in the in in the organization that yeah we need to fix this we've got problems and they need to be fixed and I, yeah I, I I mean it's been twenty years so it's not like there would be any risk to them but I I didn't clear it with them ahead of time so I'm not going to name any names but that's fine that's no no worries about that yeah I was just wondering I mean with the amount of money that was involved I, I often wonder if there were not these kind of behind the scenes thing going on, like uh, has happened at Olympics and and other 
events where there's the lots of money involved, you know, like the, all the anti-doping stuff that they're doing in various uh, sports these days and all the, the shady stuff that's going on behind the scenes. Wouldn't shock me if, if back in the day in the, the browser wars that something like that went on, you know? Well, none of it ever made it my way, unfortunately. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> knew you were uncorruptible. Yeah, I wish I, yeah, exactly. You, you were <laughs> like, I, I wish I had a better story to tell. You could do it from your yacht, right? <laughs> Exactly. Right. Like, yeah. If if someone had been slinging Brian money my way, you know, it's, I'd be connecting it from my private island. But yeah. no, sadly not. Appar- apparently, I was the Elliot Ness of the web. If you oh, had just man. adopted Microsoft's proprietary Blink property, you'd be set for life. No, no, no. Netscape was Blink. Oh, that's Microsoft right. Was, Microsoft was Marquee. Marquee. Mm-hmm. That's what I <laughs> hmm mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. Well, that's... That's really interesting. I mean, the history of some of this stuff is pretty amazing, but let's let's talk a little bit about where CSS is today. So we have some really awesome things that have been coming out. We've got Flexbox, we've got Grid, and Grid has gotten... I, I'm very impressed with how quickly some of these new standards are being adopted. I, I don't remember the exact stat, but my understanding is that Grid within a span of two years, it's got some insanely high coverage, right? Yeah. Um, actually, in the space of a month, it went from 0% public support to 70% public support. That's, in, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's not the thing we're used to in the CSS space, I will admit. No. no. Yeah. But so there's, so Flexbox and Grid are two sides of this story. So Flexbox, like staggered into public support for years with a lot of setbacks, right? So like a, there was a Flexbox implementation that came out and then another one that came out that wasn't quite compatible with it. And then as the implementations got used by more people, the working group would look at what they were doing and say, oh, that's not really what we, what we meant. And they'd have to literally change property names and value names in order to not create incompatib- backwards incompatibilities. And it, it just, it, it took years and everyone was like, Oh, is is Flexbox still not supported? Right, it became one of those. It almost felt like right. vaporware, <laughs> in mm. a way. Even yeah. though it was there, but it, there were so many incompatibilities, and it changed so many times. Like someone would sit down and learn Flexbox, and six months later, part of what they had learned was still correct, but another part was not right. Oh. Grid, the the people who worked on Grid learned from that, <laughs> and said, no public implementation shipping. Everything's behind flags. You have to turn on like the special flag in the developer, or whatever, to be able to even test it, and which no regular person will do, right? No non-developer is going to do that. Right. So if you try to ship Grid now, I mean, go ahead, but literally your entire audience will not see it because none of them have flipped the flag. Right. But you can still mess with it. So they messed with it and they did all of that back and forth behind flags hmm. so that when the working group said, okay, we're, we're done. Now we know we're done. We have literally, there are like two interoperable implementations between behind flags. We don't have any plans to change this spec. We've moved it to, you know, the candidate recommendation or, or whatever the, the thing is. At that point, it was literally the Firefox and, and Chrome and so on just set it for in the next version, this comes out from behind the flag. That's all they had to do because they'd already worked on it for three or four years. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it was the same process, but it was handled so differently. And so, yeah, so Grid like immediately came out. And what was weird was the the 
the one, the sort of the holdout was Internet Explorer or, well, Edge. Internet Explorer had shipped the first grid implementation back when we were still doing vendor prefixes instead of flags. And it wasn't, it, it had changed a bit, but they had released that in like 2012. And now they were the ones that didn't have, <laughs> have a shipping, shipping version of grid. But it was only like six months later that they were able to come out from behind flag on that. Yeah, and and it's the 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 percentages have just grown as you know the evergreen roll of upgrades has happened, and so yeah, it's um grid is a, grid is so great. It's just yeah. so great. Uh, yeah, it's so great. Yeah, I've played around with it on a couple projects and just like slipped it in there when I knew the the client didn't have to support older IE that had issues with it and the developer tools behind it. Uh, you know, to play with it in the browser. Um, the learning stuff out there, Jen Simmons and Rachel Andrew, yeah. I think we talked about Rachel before the show started. Um, West Boss has a really great course. There's so much there to learn. Yeah, it's if anyone hasn't jumped into it yet, it, it's so, so much fun. You, know, you get to also say goodbye to a lot of tooling that you're keeping around for a while. We had had many good years using like Bourbon and Neat, which are great. And then, I mean, you can go back to like 960 Grid and all those guys. But <laughs> yeah, CSS Grid by itself can just do away with quite a lot of that you know do away with a lot of that yeah i i liken it to the transition when we went from table layout to float layout with mm -hmm. css <laughs> layout but all we had at the time was floats yeah right but we within a few years then like the new kids who were graduating from web design courses and then got you know hired by companies that had code bases would look at the source and be like what is this crap <laughs> what what why did you use tables? Who yeah. would do that? <laughs> we're, and then we're about to have that same thing, right? Where where the you know kids are coming out of the design courses and they're gonna you know they're gonna get, open up the CSS and like where's the grid? Right. Where's your grid stuff? And why why is everything floated? What who would who would do that? Yeah. Why would you float is not for layout because right. it never was right. right? So well, yeah, there were, there are the horrible things that you had to do though. Oh yeah. Know? Yep. Yeah. And you can just, you can throw them all out. And the great thing about the design of CSS, it's the language is that you can have all that float stuff. Like you can literally just take your float layout and drop grid styles on top of that style sheet, not take away the floats because the grid has been specified. If you, if a thing becomes a grid item, any float value is ignored on it. Mm. Right. So you don't have to do the, like these crazy, like what version browser do you have? I'm going to give you a different style sheet. No, just like write, write your grid stuff and just add it to the style sheet. And then, you know, a couple of years from now, when you're, when you're doing a cleanup or a refactor or whatever, you can go back and say, Oh, all this float stuff is still here. Well, shh, drag, select, delete. Right. Goodbye. Right. So Eric, for people who are listening to this, who maybe are not, maybe they haven't played with grid yet. Maybe they're still predominantly using maybe floats. If there's some of you out there doing that or probably more likely Flexbox. Can you talk about where CSS grid sits in relation to Flexbox? I mean, is this, is this like our, is this a replacement for Flexbox? Is it going to, you know, are we going to stop using Flexbox? We're going to move to grid or are these two, are these two methods that work together to achieve a layout? You talk a little bit about that. They are two methods that work together. Okay. So because Flexbox predates grid, some of the things that people were doing with Flexbox, they'll probably switch over to grid. And uh, Rachel and Jen and, and Wes, uh, you know, that, that you mentioned, they all make the same point that I'm going to make, which is Flexbox is designed for 
one-dimensional layout. It's designed for is designed for layout along a single axis. Mm. So if you want to distribute things horizontally and like in a line, that's that's flexbox. If you want to distribute them vertically in a single line, that's flexbox. Now you can make flexbox wrap so it goes to multiple lines, and as long as you don't want the things in those multiple lines to relate to each other between like from one line to another, then you're okay in flexbox. But if the minute you want things to line up along both axes, grid, right? You can fake it with flexbox just like we faked it with floats. Mm. Right. But that's not what they're designed for. Yeah. Right. So flexbox is great for, you know, your nav bar across the top of your brochure site and you want you've got a number of links and you want to evenly distribute them across that that space. Flexbox is what is there for you. I mean, you can do the same thing with Grid, but that's what Flexbox is really designed for. And you can do the same thing. That, and this is one of the other things that a lot of people don't realize. Anything you can do vertically or horizontally in Flexbox, you can do vertically. Hmm. So if you figure out the, like this really cool way of aligning things along the, the horizontal axis, you can do exactly the same thing vertically. But you can't have the, the flex items in your third row line up with the flex items in your first row unless you hack that together. Whereas with grid, you're literally defining a two-dimensional grid and saying this thing goes here, that thing goes there, this thing goes here, and they're all going to line up with each other kind of the way HTML tables did. Yeah. Kind of. Not exactly, <laughs> but it, it's reminiscent of that, which is why I've seen, I've seen people say, oh, grids, it's tables 2.0. It's like, oh, okay, no. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, yes, you can fake table layout with <laughs> with grid, but you can do so much more. So the so much the more. exact scenario you talked about is a, is the problem that I ran into recently. I only have one site in production that uses a little bit of CSS grid, but the the problem I ran into was it called for like a masonry type layout. So if anybody's familiar with that, it's kind of like stacking bricks and everything just kind of falls where it will. Um, so usually this is achieved with JavaScript. I didn't want to go that route. So I was able to achieve the look of it with Flexbox, but the problem was the sorting order of them. So um, as the page, uh, you know, becomes smaller, the items would be completely out of order uh, when they resorted. So I was able, I found a really great technique. I think Andrew used to send this to me. So using CSS Grid to achieve a perfect masonry layout. And then, of course, because of the way Grid works, everything retained its correct order. Nice. Well, let me yeah. let me switch the the focus a, a little bit because I think there are some interesting things going on in the CSS world, and I really would be interested uh, in hearing your take on them. So the the first thing is utility first CSS. Do you have any thoughts on that as a technique, Eric? So I'm going to admit I haven't done a super ton of research into things like utility first CSS. But as I understand it, utility first CSS is kind of like BEM. Is that true? <laughs> well, it, it's, it's the idea is instead of spending a lot of time styling elements on your page within a style sheet, you just have a bunch of CSS classes that you string together to achieve the same look. So it's sort of a more rapid way to, uh, to develop. Okay. So, right. So that's, it's the sort of thing that we've seen in, you know, React and, and Angular and things like that. And also with thing, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to make it sound like utility CSS is just BEM 2.0 because, but they share that in common where you have a bunch of classes and you're, you're only really ever talking to the classes. I think it's similar to BEM in that it, it, it is an attempt to circumvent the cascade a little bit. If anybody else wants to jump in, but I sort of view it that way. Well, I think it's, 
a way to think about it uh, from my perspective is that it's it's kind of a CSS framework, but the only classes that are there are utility classes that you use to build other things, right? So whereas with BEM, you have a specific naming convention and you would have a, a pile of classes that are assigned to, you know, I don't know, name display. Maybe you've got like a, some kind of a name badge on your site. Instead of that, you would have something like uh, text size uh, or, or sorry, text small and or W4 or whatever. And those end up uh, being these little utility classes that you string together to form the styling. And a lot of people's initial reaction is, well, it's just inline CSS, like it's just using a style tag. It's really quite a bit different from that because you have generators that will actually create the utility for CSS for you that are tailored to what you want. And then they are actually CSS classes. Um, so you can do all sorts of nifty things with it. And they have the ability to, you can at, use at apply, which is a directive in there, to combine CSS classes together, which is something that I've been wanting for all of my CSS life, Yeah, is the ability to say, this is a subclass of that, you know? That solves a major problem for me too, because I was always really guilty of trying to prematurely abstract things in my CSS. And so rather than spending a lot of time sort of having this crazy abstraction where it may not be warranted, you can just dive into the code and start stringing your classes together and build things a little bit more rapidly. And then as you do that, you sort of start noticing patterns like, oh, I'm I'm copying the same chain of 10 classes, you know, a bunch of times on my page for this button that I'm using everywhere. So that, that you can then use the add apply directive to abstract that away, but it but it does discourage premature abstraction, which is really nice. Yeah, I think that's a real benefit from it. And for what it's worth, I mean, we had Adam Wathamon, who's uh, on, who's the author of Tailwind CSS. And I told him outright, I, I, I first looked at Tailwind and I thought it was stupid. You know, I'm, I'm like, why are we doing this? Like, this is insane. But, but, but after using a utility first approach for a while... I can't even imagine going back. It's just so much nicer, at least from my perspective. Well, cool. Eric, what well, about? I mean, so my, I mean, I, I don't, I don't necessarily have a problem with it any more than I have, uh, I had with Bem or the others, because to me, I mean, I, I, I always personally get a little bit wary if, a, if a thing is apparent is is apparently designed to ignore the cascade. Because I've actually talked to people who have done this before in other frameworks who've said, yeah, the cascade and inheritance is all, all, it only gets in our way and, and we need to overcome it. And then like five years later, they, they make this whole framework. And then five years later, if you get them in conversation, you're like, yeah, that was kind of a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So not not to say that utility, the, you know, that the, the people behind utility first or, or whatever will come to that same conclusion. And and I, I I can understand the appeal of that, particularly if you're doing what we would maybe think of as app design, right? Right. Like web, quote unquote web app design, and right. You know, to quote Jeremy Keith, you know, web apps are like obscenity. You you can't define it, but you know it when you see it. And so, you, like, I, I get the I get where that would be useful. And I you know we've always used it to some extent, all of us, I think, right? Yeah, <laughs> because of you know. 
you have your buttons that you, you all you all your call to action buttons are different than the other buttons, and so you give them a CTA class, yeah. right? That, that's a no, utility you're, class. You're right. The approach we've all used it to one extent or another. This is taking it to the extreme, where right. you have a JavaScript config file that you can use to generate your utility first CSS. And then you get classes for everything. Like it's crazy. Like there's a, a W-1, W-2, W-full, and these all just represent different widths, right? Mm. So when you're sitting in there and you're you're writing stuff, you're kind of doing it stenographer style in that you have these shortcuts for these things, you know? I don't know. I, I found it a really, really awesome a- approach for what it's worth. But what about things like CSS in, in JavaScript? Like that's something that for whatever reason in the the industry right now, like it's some kind of weird holy war where there people are just like, it's awful. And other people are like, no, it's awesome. I mean, do you have any kind of take on that, Eric? So to me, as with almost everything in our profession, my answer ends up being it depends, <laughs> right? Which is pretty much the answer to everything. Like, should I do this? It depends. Yeah. <laughs> like most of the time, maybe, but other times, maybe not. So to me, the, one of my biggest problems with CSS and JavaScript is that you're taking an, you're, you're trying to take a robust layer and pour it into a fragile layer. Hmm. And that just doesn't sit right with me. And when I say robust and fragile, what I mean is CSS is intentionally designed so that if there are mistakes, it will keep going. It's much like HTML. In fact, it's explicitly like HTML in that, in that fashion where an error doesn't mean that it just drops everything on the floor and tells you to take a hike, it does the best it can. If it if CSS runs into a property or a value it doesn't understand, it just drops that bit and keeps going with the rest. Whereas in JavaScript, you know, you misplace a semicolon, well, not a semicolon, a closing brace, and the yeah. entire thing just dies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and maybe sometimes a semicolon, it depends on which semicolon. <laughs> right. But to me that's very fragile. And I understand the appeal if you're if you want like something that either works or it doesn't. It's a very binary thing. But I, and I've done pro, I like I program in languages where that happens. I've, you know, I started out in basic and, and I've written pad turbo Pascal and I've written PHP and I've written other languages where, you know, like literally you hit F9 to compile. And if there's an error, it's not going to compile and it's going to tell you why, hopefully tell you why it didn't compile. But yeah, that, the web's that's not where, like that. <laughs> that's, that's my, that's where I come from, right? Like it, when I was doing stuff in, uh, in C or whatever, when you compile, when you write something, like you make a mistake, like it just doesn't compile. Like you, right. that's it. Like you're done, <laughs> you know? And, and that provides a certain level of comfort, right? Because if it does compile, like at least it does something. <laughs> it might not do exactly what you asked, what you wanted it to do. It do, it'll do what you asked it to do. But the web and CSS, HTML and CSS are very robust, right? They're very fault tolerant. They're very error tolerant. You know, we don't have a situation where if your CMS fails to output closing tags that when someone tries to lose your page, they'll literally just get an error message and no content. Yeah. It'll just barf. <laughs> right. And it, XHTML2 was going to require that. That's I think I personally think it's most of the reason HTML2 died because basically the, the XHTML working group said to web developers, so we're going to make it so that if anything in your markup is wrong, literally the page will just throw an error. And we were like, what are you insane? <laughs> That's not how this works, right? Yeah, it's, um, a it's a different mentality. It's a different mentality. Yeah. 
but to me, that robustness is a fundamental aspect of accessibility. Even if there's an error, the technologies do their utmost to get the information to the user. That's accessible. That's, that's a version of accessibility. Yeah. So show me something. Even if it's not perfect, show me something. You know, but yeah, the difference in mentality is, you know, me coming from the app development world, it's kind of considered a good thing that it doesn't compile. You know what I mean? But when you're coming from the the point of view of the web where you're accessing information, it's bad that you can't get at that information, right? Yep. And the web was fundamentally designed to be accessible. The web prizes ubiquity over consistency and it prizes accessibility over correctness. Those are fundamental design principles of the web. Like literally going back to Tim Berners-Lee sitting at Stern. The the funny thing, excuse me. The right. funny thing, though, is we're all using tooling. So if we're using any of these things, like we're going to have the some of the folks from uh, Emotion JS on the show soon. They're, they've got a CSS and JS framework, and we're going to be talking about that. But in order to use these tools, you you have to have a tooling that runs through something like Babel, right? Mm. And it's going to it will not let you you as a developer it will not let you build something that has something syntactically wrong with it. Right. So it's just going to throw an error. So if you're if you're using some of these tools by extension, you're also using something that compiles it down into something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that probably helps with the fragility a little bit. But I I totally get where you're coming from, because I don't know, man, like I, I look at the the CSS and JS and I have flashbacks to what PHP was like over a decade ago. Right where you had, you had basically, uh, or JSX in general, not just CSS in J in JS, and you have flashbacks to where you've got HTML and PHP like sprinkled around each other. You know what I mean? Yep. And it just like I get why they want it, and it seems kind of cool, but part of it just I don't know, just makes my spidey sense go off. You know, <laughs> it's, it's it feels yeah. a little weird. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean if if you're in an environment where everything's mediated through JavaScript anyway, you know, if you're if your HTML is in CS is in JavaScript, then your CSS may as well be in JavaScript. Right. I mean Well, that's where they're coming from. <laughs> right. I that, and that's it. And I understand that. Of right. course, the you know, the problem is if, you know, the JavaScript breaks, mm-hmm. then it's all it's all done. It's it's gone. I I I don't know if this is still true, but at one point bustle.com like not not the bustle media group but like the literal bustle the web mag mm-hmm. was if the javascript didn't run you you got nothing like no content right like on on the homepage and i took a screenshot of that because i used it in a talk where i said this is doing the web wrong i'm sorry but it is right. it's not maybe not doing programming wrong but it's doing the web wrong um because this is this is a magazine like i should not depend i should not have to have the latest ECMAScript implementation, or I should not have to be able to load the entire JavaScript tarball just in order to be able to read articles. Yep. Right. Um, That's not what the web is. (laughs) That's not, I mean, that's not how it was designed. What the web is, we all sort of collectively make, but that's not how it was designed. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, the web was originally for serving up documents and accessing information and all that kind of stuff. I think what is going on now and has been going on for several years is the web is transforming into also being an app delivery platform, right? And the, the browser is a platform for apps and you can ship like Slack, perfect example, 
Facebook, perfect example. These are apps. I mean, they are built using serious dev tools and they are building some really complicated apps. And I think some of the chafing that we're seeing is we're trying to marry the two worlds, right? We've got coming from the idea of it being a document delivery and other people are saying, no, 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 what I want to do is I want to deliver apps on this thing. You know, and necessarily you're kind of coming from a different perspective because you want it to do different things, you know? Yeah, that, that's really true. Although, you know, the, the thing about it being a document delivery system, there were there were a few app-like features even at the outset. That's what one, one of the things that makes the web so unique yeah. is that, you know, it had like search capabilities built into it. And I mean, in Tim Berners-Lee's original vision, it had edit capabilities built in. Like you could edit a page. Yeah. That wasn't yours. <laughs> um, oh, and you can do so, that in Chrome. <laughs> there is well, actually an right. editor in Chrome now. Yeah. Yeah. But like the idea was the vision, I, I think the closest that we could sort of analogize it to now is that the, the web would be a giant Wikipedia. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, <laughs> right. We didn't, that didn't, that didn't end up happening because it turns yeah. out uh, a document viewer or a page viewer is a lot easier to write than a, than a, a viewer and an editor. Well, um, also it probably would have devolved into something horrible. <laughs> you, know? I, you know, I, I, I trust based on what I understand of, of, of Sir Tim's vision, I, I trust that it wouldn't have been quite as yeah. awful <laughs> as all that. There were, there were some safeguards built into it, but like the idea was that it was, it was a more of a two way street. It, but, it yeah, reminds it, me of the the first person that was sitting at their webpage and he, and was like, you know what? I think I'm going to implement comments. That's great. I'm going to let the <laughs> world have their say. What could go wrong? And then, what could go wrong? And then and then comments have turned into this like cesspool of horribleness, you know? <laughs> well, comments turn into a cesspool of horribleness when the people responsible for the places where the comments are left allow them to. Sure. I still have comments on my blog. And if people post crap, I delete it. Right. Right. That's and I understand that that's difficult to do at scale. Right. But it's still the truth that you know, if YouTube comments are horrible cesspools because YouTube doesn't try to make them not horrible cesspools and, you know, resource argument, you know, I understand that there are practical considerations there, but still, <laughs> you're not really trying. I'm going to test uh, you, Eric. Yep. At some point in the next few weeks, you're going to find some comments <laughs> on your website. Okay. <laughs> They're not going to be horrible. But there will be there will be there'll be a test to see if you're reading it and end up deleting them. <laughs> okay. Well, if you've never commented before, I'll have to approve the, the, them before they go up. Oh. Uh, and and if you have commented, <laughs> I'll still get notification that the comments went up. In fact, that happened recently, and I unapproved one. Defeated. I've been yeah. defeated. Well, not, not not defeated. <laughs> I would love to have comments, particularly from people as smart as the three of you. But you know. It's yeah, I, there's there's monitoring in place and I make it clear in the in the in the comment posting that, you know, management reserves the right to delete anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I and try I, and I really think hard is, not to, but yeah. <laughs> and I think that is the problem, right? It's the oversight and the amount of work that it can end up being, you know? Yes. And there yes. are lots of small organizations or whatever that they would love to allow people to engage, but they don't have the the resources or manpower to sit here and deal with it. And there are also horrible things that can happen in terms of automated bots and scripts. And then how do you protect against that? And it it ends up being this escalating arms war to the the point where a lot of organizations are just like, screw it. 
<laughs> like we're right. no, and, no comments, you know. And honestly, that's what they should be doing. If you're yeah. if you're gonna create a community and you're not willing to police it, for lack of a better term, then don't have a community. Yeah. <laughs> Just don't. Um, well, I want to. When we introduced you, we mentioned that you're from an event apart. And my understanding is that you are in the process or you and your team are in the process of moving that website from Expression Engine to, to Craft CMS. Is that right? Uh, almost right. Okay. We are done moving it from oh. Expression Engine oh. to Craft CMS. Wow. Oh. Finito. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So, in fact, if you go to an eventapart.com uh, right now, it's you're, you're getting Craft. Now, I'm, I'm setting myself up for crushing disappointment. That's fine. But I'm going to ask anyway. Okay. Did, did you happen to use SEOmatic on that site? Uh, we are not using it so far. <sighs> Consider right. yourself disappointed. So the, <laughs> the reason for that is that most of the stuff that SEOmatic would do for us, I had already like done manually in Expression Engine, and I just ported the code over, basically. So... Um, but I, we're going to come back to it. Uh, My to life is it, a failure. Uh, <laughs> they have, my, they have played, Meyer Matic. I played so much Maelstrom. Your life is not a failure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get money from you one more time, man. Come on. <laughs> you know, Andrew's like hitting the event pages looking. Is there JSON LT? Is there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I already had the, the event JSON stuff. Like, <laughs> I already had it coded up. An expression engine, which that was an experience. Let me tell you. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. Yeah, you don't want to. That actually leads me to my next question. So, what factored into your decision to port the website over to Craft CMS? Okay, so we've been on expression engine for quite a while. How many years? Oh God, Um, several. Okay, I I don't remember how many. Um, All right. So that'll give you some idea. Let's let's call it around. Let's call it around five. Five. Um, we'll go with five. And we had gotten a couple of major releases behind because uh, we had customized it with a bunch mm. of extensions, and then a lot of them didn't get updated, and some mm. of them yep. were pretty crucial to our workflow. It's a common yep. common scenario. Common. I yeah. I started to learn that that was a common scenario. So so uh, Nicole Ramsey, who's uh, Expression Engine and Craft and 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 other technology developer that uh, works with us. Basically, she started to look at upgrading us to the latest version of Expression Engine. That was that was where we started. I said, mm-hmm. hey, we're, we're way behind. The security holes are a little too big to ignore right now. We need yeah. to we need to get rolling on this. And so she did a test uh, setup of the Expression Engine 4 or 5. I don't remember what version it was. Whatever was the latest at the end of last year or middle of last year. And she said, you know, and set it up and did a quick port over of the data and then said, okay, so the following things aren't going to work anymore. And, and here's the back end. And I went into the back end and I looked at stuff and she said, you know, <laughs> given that we're going to have to re-implement a lot of the stuff from scratch and you're going to have to learn a whole new UI. Maybe we should look at other CMSs. And I said, yeah. you know what, that's, that's a pretty good idea. Let's at least look at it. Maybe we'll come back to doing the expression engine upgrade, but let's look around. And so she, she looked around and, and craft was very quickly rose to the top of the pile, uh, you know, because of its roots in expression engine, it made some sense. Our host was actually super jazzed about us moving over to craft. They're, they're hmm. big on craft. Oh, cool. that, Did you consider Joomla? Uh, <laughs> it might've come up. 
That's a super common scenario, though, and I, I've seen that repeated many times to, over, is that the website gets out of date because of all the customization. And a lot of the customization was done to fill in defects in the CMS, like thing functionality that wasn't there that you really needed if you're going to do anything reasonable, right? And then when things don't get updated and you're looking at a migration that would be just as much work just to move it over to something else, you know? I think in many cases, it's less work. It's less work to pursue just moving to a different content management system. Yeah. Well, and yeah, and you get a you get a clean slate. And, you know, my my belief has always been both when it comes to servers and to CMSs is do as much as you can to never modify the core because you'll get locked in and you're not going to be able to upgrade it. I learned this when I was very, very young. So when I was still a, a teenager, I ran a, a bulletin board system from my home. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And it used this Mac software called Red Rider that only really old people are ever going to remember, right? I remember. (laughs) And so what I did is I customized the hell out of it. Like I changed all of this stuff in it. And then he came out with a new version and I'm like, oh man, like I can't, I can't update it because I customized it, you know? So what I try to do is, uh, you know, not touch core if at all possible. And then the other thing is always keep things up to date. Like the pain of having to do a, a major update, no. especially especially to a server, is way less than the cumulative pain of doing the incremental updates along the way. You know, but since you have converted over to Craft CMS from Expression Engine, like, tell us some things that you like about it. Uh, I love the fact that the CMS does not want to even look in the direction of templates um, mm. in terms of managing them. The fact that I can just edit files and check them into GitHub and I don't have to go through the CMS to edit my templates. Love it. Yeah. Um, A lot of the logic structures from Twig and that Craft has added on top of Twig, you know, things like, you know, the last uh, function or method or whatever the heck it is. Um, I never really took computer science, so I don't, I still don't know the difference between a method and a a whatever, but... (laughs) um, (laughs) Just stuff well, like it depends that, right? on what like, the whatever is. See, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that that kind of stuff. It feels more performant for what we're doing. Yeah. We don't have tons and tons of content the way that, you know, the IBM.com would or whatever. We have a, a fair amount of content, but it's still, you know, a thousand, couple thousand records maybe. So it's more performant for us. And we're also we're also not doing super a lot of like weird, deep complex cross-searching at this point. We're, we're trying to get closer, but uh, I like that. Uh, the the interface is, uh, and I don't want to start uh, any trouble here, but it's more WordPress-like mm. for, the, for the administration, which was uh, good because Jeffrey and I both use WordPress for our personal blogs. Mm-hmm. Right. So we're super used to it. You know, it's not, obviously it's not exactly the same, but it's much more like WordPress in terms of the administration. What was the other thing? Oh, just the, um, some of the, uh, especially in the administrative side, a lot of the touches like where if you, if you have a record that has a field that references another record and you double click on that, it pops up a little edit window. Yeah. It's nice, huh? Oh, it's so great. Yeah. I found it by accident once. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, that, that just justified the entire move right there. <laughs> so <laughs> the fact that I don't have to go searching for wherever I put this other thing yeah. to edit it. Oh yeah. So good. I think Craft has a unique combination of a very friendly 
content authoring experience, like like you just mentioned, and then also a front end that is very developer friendly in that the Twig templating language is actually pretty damn good in terms of the stuff that you would want to do to display things on a page. You can have variables and um, it's actually quite good for what you would want in a templating language. So it's really kind of this nice mix in my book of very developer friendly for how the front end is built, which means it makes no assumptions and it gives you a templating language and is very extensible. And then on the back end, and there are lots of CMSs that are like that, that are very programmatic and, you know, whatever, but it combines it with a back end that I very comfortably can hand off to clients and they're going to love it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, we. I mean, we don't have to hand off to a client, but I. I would absolutely agree. And actually, the the um, the other thing that I loved about Craft is that approximately eighty percent of the things that we had extended onto Expression Engine, Craft already did. Yes. Which is, sort of gets back to what we were saying before, but like tags, for example, which were not in Expression Engine core, and I don't know, maybe they still aren't. Um, are just there. Right. Now, getting our data over into craft was actually a, a stumbling block, a pretty major one. It was not easy. And we Migrations using, are never fun. <laughs> yeah, you know? but th- for, for, a, for a project that came out of Expression Engine, it still felt a little bit weirdly uh, thorny. Mm. Um, in, in fairness, or, um, we started... M- moving into craft just after version three. Okay. Yeah. And we, we started with three. So if there was more of an ecosystem about importing in version two, we just, we missed it. Yeah. Um, I I think there was a little bit more of one. There were some other tools that did it. uh, And I think that tooling is starting to come around, but I mean, your reason interesting. Yeah. We ended up using feed me a lot. That's (laughs) that's very common. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you, you raise an interesting point, right? So if I was running Pixel and Tonic, and let's say that I really wanted to target Expression Engine, because I knew a lot of people were coming from that community, you know, invest some development hours in a uh, port from Expression Engine button, you know? Yeah, yeah. That would be 90% of the way there. That would be an interesting thing that they could do. Yeah, I, I would I would agree. Of course, they're not my resources to have to allocate, but, you know, yeah. so easy for me to say, but... Right. and. The, I mean, the other thing that I, and I've, I've actually talked directly with them about this is the documentation for version three could really use some work. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's great. Cause I was about to ask you about the pain points and I yeah. think the, the documentation is documentation is one of those things that I've only found a few places that really do it really, really well. Cause it's hard. It's hard. Oh, yeah. to do Documentation is super hard. And like literally in the course of the conversation, they would, you know, that I had with them, they would say, so, you know, like, give us an example of where you had a problem. And I would say, okay, well, I went to this point and they would say, oh, right. So that code is actually version two. That's not version three compliant. I said, see, uh, yeah. <laughs> right. That's, yeah. that's a problem. But, yeah. and again, you know, like you said, documentation is super hard. I get that it's super hard. I have had to maintain documentation, not, you know, that's not as complex as what they have to to, to deal with. So, you know, I get that, that, that it's a major challenge, but it definitely was, it definitely was a, a, um, a handicap on the process. And this is, I mean, this is how I ended up in the craft Slack team, basically asking uh, for all I know, completely obvious questions, or maybe they were completely non-obvious questions, but they were questions I couldn't find answers to. Um, and that I would try to do what was in the documentation and it wouldn't really work. 
the way I thought it should or the way that the documentation said it should. So I'd, I'd be in the craft sock like, hey, I'm trying to blah, 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 blah. And, you know, the people there are awesome. And you, Andrew, and other people as well. I was um, going to say, that's how we met. Yes, immediately jump in with an answer like, oh, you do this. And I was like, oh, okay. Now that I see it written, it makes sense. And then you're like, I know that guy. I never would have. <laughs> it, it, took, it took me a little bit. Before I kind of, before the, the old memories sort of stirred a little, it was like, Andrew Welch. Now there's a name I haven't heard in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's great. But uh, yeah, I agree with you that documentation could use some work. And uh, I think that they are definitely devoting some resources to it. I, I think that they're, they're a relatively small team. So I think it's tough because they, they just work their butts off just to get things shipped and, and to the docs on top of it. But I agree with you. I mean, I think one of the biggest things that you can do if you want good adoption is to have good documentation. Vue.js has some of the best documentation I've ever seen. Tailwind CSS has really, really good documentation. And I think that any community that has grown really well, really quickly a lot of it is due to the documentation. It's such a huge thing, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I really think the only other pain point was, uh, like I said, like importing and uh, that, that also included assets, getting the assets moved over. But I, I mean, moving assets between any two projects is a Royal nightmare. Usually. Yeah. So, data migrations are hard too. I mean, that's another thing in, in addition to documentation, data migrations are hard because unless you write it, specifically for, you know, like I was saying before, expression engine to craft CMS. If you try to write a general purpose something or other, it's it still is really difficult and it takes a lot of setup because the data can be coming in all sorts of crazy formats. And like you, you had that issue that I remember now that, that, I, that I helped you with is something that just wasn't working. And it ended up being this really crazy thing where invisible characters were embedded in, in, the, in the text, right? Yeah. And, you know, that's one of those things like, uh, you know, who would, yep. who would have thought, right? Who, who yeah. would have? Yeah. And um, the easy import from Expression Engine, you know, which version? <laughs> yes. Right. And Just, what extensions, you know, yeah. because yeah. every Do Expression you, Engine install is going to have a bajillion third-party extensions or plugins. I think know? that's the clear problem with some of the older Expression Engine installs is because Expression Engine did require so many plugins, you know, to sort of make it behave how you needed it to behave. It's very unpredictable how, how you would actually get data out of any given install. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And yeah, right now, I mean, we're, we have a few plugins that we're running. Yeah. Just not, 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 not any of mine. Uh, clearly. Not many. <laughs> yeah. Well, not so far. And actually, of of the five that we're running, one of them yeah. is FeedMe that we don't even use anymore. It's, yeah. it's just we haven't bothered to uninstall it because why bother? Yeah, um, that's the nature of the beast for the. Oh, sorry, like that. sorry, six plugins. I installed the tags plugin just so tag. I can see all of the tags listed. The tag manager, yeah, that's really useful. Yeah, 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 super useful. We're gonna look at the SEO matic thing, dude. Just geez. give the, give the man a copy just, of SEO matic. My no. spirit is just crushed. No, do not crushed. give me a copy. I still need to evaluate whether or not it's really going to help us. But roll. actually, that would be even funnier if you evaluate it and you're like, nah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, like it's I said, confirmed. We don't need it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
like like I said, I had already written the JSON stuff yeah. that, that we really needed. So, you know, I mean, yes, there's more I should be looking at. No, you're right. That's where the real work is, right? So, yeah. it, well, the real work in, in SEO is, number one, understanding everything that you can and should be doing. Right. Because it takes a lot of knowledge to to pull that all together. And then number two is is implementing it. And if it was in a case like this where you have a bespoke website that you created and you already had, had done all the infrastructure, the work of porting that over is not that bad. But if you're an agency and you're churning out sites right and left, like it's just so much work to do that. You know, it's yeah. so much work to do it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But, yep. But overall, like uh, how has your experience been getting it up and running on on craft? Like if it were if we're rating this on a you know beauty pageant scale, you know one out of ten, what would you give it? So, so just to be clear, one is the worst and ten is the best. I don't want correct. To correct. Be on the wrong end of the scale here. Yeah, uh, I give it an eight. Um, yeah, solid eight. That's good. Eight eight and a half maybe. Um, yeah. Because most of the problems we ran into were predictable problems. And they were problems we were going to face no matter what. I mean, even getting from Expression Engine 2 to 4, we were going to have some of these problems. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about the documentation, but documentation problems are more or less universal. And there's a great community that can help out. So that, you know, that makes up for a lot of it. If it weren't for that community, we'd be more in the like five to six territory probably. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Just because of how long it would have taken to try to or figure it out or never actually managing to figure it out Um, or just getting frustrated and wandering off, you know? Right. But that wasn't really an option. Like we, I I couldn't just walk away from this. This was not a hobby thing. This was, you know, Hey, we, you're, you're getting to the top of that mountain no matter what. Right. Yeah. We, we had to one way or the other, but the experience of running it since we finished the migration has just, I mean, I, I give it a, I only give it a nine and a half because I I'm like constitutionally prohibited from giving tens. Um, <laughs> wow. That's basically. Good. That's yeah. Good. It's just, it's, and for what we're doing in particular, it's just so good. And, uh, oh, what was the, what's the name of this plugin? I'm, I'm doing my own, uh, dashboard widgets. Oh God. What's the plugin called? Uh, I can't remember. Maybe now. it's called dashboard widget. <laughs> Uh, I don't think it is. But it's a it's a plugin that allows you to put what kind of information in the dashboard. Uh, do it yourself widget, no, DIY widget. Yeah, so you can you can make your own like there's simple dashboard widgets, but so as an example, I wanted my own version of recent edits. Mm, right. Where in my case I wanted to be able to see not only what had been edited, but what category it was in, the data was edited and who had edited it. Yeah, that's from Carl CS, who is yep. well known in the craft community. He's an awesome guy, really smart. And uh, it basically lets you create widgets that the content is a twig template that you can put whatever you want in it, right? Yeah. yeah. So it doesn't, I, I've talked to him about this. It doesn't have the ability to like make your own configuration thing, you know, and in, in the craft widgets, you click on the little uh, gear icon and the thing flips over. Yep. It, you, it doesn't do that, at least not out of the box. So it's, you know, it's a little simpler than than built-in craft widgets, but it's still. I also uh, did a thing where so I usually when I open up the dashboard, the the sidebar isn't visible. So if I wanted to create a new entry, uh, like I log into Craft, then I click on the hamburger menu to make the sidebar slide out, and then I click on entries, and I got tired of doing that, so I made my own little dashboard widget that's literally just create a new entry and it lists all of the categories. And you like if I click on events it'll immediately give me a, a new event entry and I can start putting in, you know, an event apart, 
Poughkeepsie or whatever. Or if, uh, you know, we have a new speaker, uh, new people, just click create entry on that dashboard widget. And, you know, whether the dashboard, uh, whether the sidebar is open or shut. So, you know, little things like that, which... Yeah, I'm not doing any. It's not like our use of craft depends on that still being there. Like if that right. went away in an update of craft, I would be a little sad, but I I could still do what I need to do. Well, but, I can tell you that the Pixel and Tonic team were really excited to hear that you were moving your website uh, and event apart over to craft. I mean, yeah, they, they well. have followed you for a while and uh, were really psyched to hear that uh, you had decided to move it over. And I'm psyched uh, that you moved it over, too, because, you know, we get a chance to meet. We we kind of met indirectly yeah. <laughs> over the years, you know, but this has been really awesome. But I think we got to uh, wind it down. Eric, I would love to have you on again at some point if you're I would if you're love to come back. Yeah, because I think you know, we got we, you know what we should do. Mm. We we should set up a Twitch channel where we play multiplayer Ambrosia games. Sure, <laughs> like over the internet. Why not? Because we have time for that. We're, st- yeah. we're still well, waiting just for the wrote- latest version of Maelstrom to come out. By the way, Andrew for OS ten. Look, I look. A lot of people don't know this, but I a lot that was written almost entirely in Assembler for it to be quick. And I had a guy approach me saying that he wanted to port it to. Uh, C and and make a cross-platform game library basically out of it. He was doing it for his PhD, right? And I was just like, okay, like, sure. If you want to do that, like, go ahead. I mean, good luck because you're you're taking this massive 68K assembler and you're going to rewrite it. And I, you know, I gave it to him. I said, sure, you know, do whatever you want. I don't care. And I thought I would never hear from him again. Well, the guy ended up doing it. He ended up porting the, the entire thing over. He wrote something called Simple Direct Media Layer, SDL for short. And he ended up working at uh, Blizzard, and I think he still works there. But because of that, Maelstrom is open source. It runs Mac, Windows, Linux. There's a network version of it. You can do pretty much anything you want with it, which is really, really kind of neat. But uh, that about wraps it up for another episode of the devmode.fm podcast. To have every episode delivered to your favorite podcast player, subscribe to our RSS or subscribe via iTunes or Google Play. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a review. You can follow us on Twitter at DevMode.fm. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Just leave us a comment on the DevMode.fm website. For the DevMode.fm podcast, I'm Andrew Welch. I'm Jonathan Melville. And thank you, Eric, for coming on, man. It's been awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. I had a great time. So sorry to cut that off, but Jonathan's got to go. I got to go pick up the kids or I'm going to probably end up getting divorced. So.